This is the East Traumacast. Traumacast. With your moderators, Ross Matback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. All right, uh, this is Carrie Valdez. I'm sitting here with Ziad Seafree, and he is our mission leader. Ziad, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, my name is uh, Ziad Seafree. I'm a trauma critical care surgeon in uh, Newark, uh, New Jersey, University Hospital, part of the New Jersey Medical Centers at Rutgers. I had the pleasure of uh, leading the mission to Peru that Carrie joined. Great, and uh, if you could explain to the listeners, this is going to be a trauma cast about multiple interviews with everyone who went on the mission trip with us, but I was hoping that you could kind of give us a little bit of history. What is ISHI and, and how did it start? So ISHI stands for the International Surgical Health Initiative. It started back in 2009 uh, when basically a group of us decided to create an organization to do humanitarian mission. Um, the reason we created it was that uh, by having our own NGO, we could decide when we could go on a mission, with whom, for how long, so that we could actually uh, do it while maintaining our academic trauma jobs. And and how do you make that work? Because it seems like to take, you know, nine or ten days off in the middle of your, like you said, your regular trauma jobs, and you go on a lot of trips. Like, how did you work that out with your uh, group and with your hospital to, to be able to go on so many trips? So, first of all, you know, before even taking taking my first job, uh, it was something I negotiated, and my boss was very flexible, very accommodating, and very kind of supportive of this. You also need a trauma team that, you know, understand that this is a passion, this is something you're very dedicated to, and they have to be flexible in terms of accommodating, um, you know, the schedule of the mission. At the same time, you have to be accommodating of the rest of the team, not schedule mission during holidays or trauma meeting or surgical meetings so that you don't put pressure, um, staffing pressure on the rest of the trauma division. Sure. Um, the missions I've gone on is last year I went to Peru, this year I went to Peru, but you go to multiple different locations. Could you tell our listeners maybe what the different locations are like and kind of the different environments? So we found like three places we go to regularly. Uh, our goal is not to go to every possible country, but really develop long-term relationships because that's when we really integrate into uh, the local hosting hospital. You get to really understand the needs and really um, not just do surgery, but go beyond that into capacity building, teaching, uh, and knowledge exchange. We go to remote places like uh, Kabbalah, which is in Sierra Leone. It's about a six-hour bus ride from Freetown, the capital. And this is a very small district hospital with very limited resources, uh, no running water, no electricity. Uh, Ghana is another place we go uh, to regularly since 2013. Over there, it's about an hour away from the city. It's a rural district hospital. Um, and, uh, and finally, Peru is kind of our uh, less challenging mission, which is in a city, actually, in the city of Trujillo. It's about an hour flight north of Lima. Uh, the needs are very high, uh, but there's a lot of uh, support locally, and uh, we get to do a lot more surgery uh, because of that support. And, and just to be clear to everybody, the Peru mission, is I think you described it to me as the, quote, cushy mission when I first interviewed. Um, and that's the only one I've been on, which is a, we're in a hotel, we have running water, we have hot water, We've got great meals all day long. And then there are other missions that are a little bit more kind of rugged. Which ones do you think are a little bit more difficult for your team? Well, I think the hardest one is the Sierra Leone. So for those that haven't done an international uh, trip or not sure this is for them or just want to go for, you know, an initial experience, I think I generally recommend the Peru mission. There's no jet lag. There's a good, you know, like I said, it's a cushy uh, experience relatively to the comfort we have outside the hospital. When you go all the way to the other extreme, like Sierra Leone, uh, everything becomes more limited. Uh, we walk to the hospital. There's really no cars in the area. There's, you know, and the accommodations are pretty limited. We're sitting all in one compound. There's 
sometimes hot water, sometimes we brought in solar uh, heating uh, containers that heat the water. There's usually no electricity at night, and the hospital is really um, has barely any resources, so we're always struggling um, to make things work and, and complete the missions we uh, we intend to do when we go there. Um, let me ask you a couple of tough questions. I get these questions at home, and, and I'm curious your perspective. Some people say to me, well, if you want to do free surgery and help poor people, why don't you just do it in Jersey? Like, why don't you just have a week where you just give free surgery to a whole bunch of people in your own community that need it? Absolutely. It's a very fair question, and it's something we get asked as well. I think there's a lot of support in uh, Jersey uh, for for people with limited resources, and a lot of people who need uh, urgent or emergent care will get it for free, whether they have the resources or not. Um, the needs abroad are, you know, a hundredfold bigger and 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 harder, and so some of us are compelled to kind of go even further and find find these people that actually have the highest need and and help them. But the needs are everywhere, so everybody should try to help in any way they can in the location they feel comfortable or driven to do to to help to help in. Um, the other hard question I get is is are you just going on like a vacation surgery like we go in for a week we do some surgeries we have fun with our friends and then we just peace out and leave a bunch of patients behind without any post-operative care well yeah we hear that all the time it's a bit frustrating because missions are hard hard work i mean the way we do them uh we're doing 10 to 12 operations a day um it's you know when you're when you're resident they tell you you operate like a crazy as a chief resident, you never get that experience again. Well, on a mission, you get to operate like a chief resident. We're operating all day, one case after another. Uh, you're, you know, kind of doing bigger, bigger, more complicated operations. So the hernias are all massive hernias. So they're more challenging and you have less equipment. You're working in a smaller space. You're working with, uh, a system you're not familiar with, with a new team, you know, in a culture, um, that is new to you. You're learning about the food, uh, you're adjusting to the temperature, you're taking a malaria tri- tri- uh, medicine, it's absolutely not a vacation. It's really hard work, uh, not just for the surgeon, but the nurses. It's long days. You know, we, we set our goals at the beginning of the mission. They're usually 50 to 60 operations. We work very hard to achieve them. And everybody is exhausted at the end of the, each day because really there's no wasted movement. There's no wasted time. We try to be as efficient um, as we can all day long. And we try to kind of maintain enough energy so that we can, uh, you know, last until the end of the mission. Everybody at the end of the mission is exhausted and people end up crashing and sleeping, you know, 12, 14 hours at the end of the mission from fatigue. And in response to the other question, leaving patients behind. So that's, that's kind of, uh, one of the challenges is what do you do when you've done your 50, 60 surgery? You know, how do you transfer care? And what we've, uh, done recently is leave uh, a small team of a doctor and a nurse behind so that they can do the follow-up and support the local team in terms of um, dealing with post-op issues and problems. The local team is very appreciative because the number of cases we do is is very helpful to them to catch up with their backlog. It's a huge help to the community, and you know they don't mind sometimes helping with the post-op care, but we understand it's a burden for them, and we try to leave a team uh, behind for five to seven days to help clean up um, kind of the work we've done. You had mentioned earlier about uh, sharing knowledge and education. Can you expound on some of the other things we do besides just providing surgery? What are some of the other educational events that we do when we go on these missions? Yeah, I mean, surgery, these missions are, you know, are a little bit more than just going there and operating. So it's more than just the knife. So when we when we leave, we always ask ourselves, what did we be, leave behind? Um, what what's going to stay behind? Uh, yes, there's a lot of patients that are helped. Uh, it makes a huge difference for them, for their family, for the community. But the stuff that stays behind is the things, the teaching we do, the bedside teaching we do, the lectures, the courses we give at the same time, and also focusing on capacity building. You know, what can we do to help? This hospital provide more surgery, safer surgery, and so whether you know sending supplies, um, helping with uh, teaching and training, uh, setting up system that will make uh, the surgical care better or more efficient is always one of our kind of uh, goals on these mission. Can you talk to me a bit about the um, stop the bleed training that you did this mission? 
Absolutely. The last three missions we've done, we've incorporated the Stop the Bleeding course, which is the, everybody knows, the one-hour ACS course. Um, we've given it in Sierra Leone, in Bangladesh, and in Peru, and the enthusiasm of the uh, students has been tremendous. Uh, in Peru specifically, we trained 240 people in four days. We gave seven courses. We aimed at the uh, police uh, staff, the firefighters, as well as the uh, – uh, we went to the prison, actually, and trained the prison guard. And, you know, every time at the beginning of the course, I ask how many people have watched somebody bleed to death. And I can tell you the prison guards, I had a 100% response. The firefighter, maybe two-thirds of them raised their hands. So when you get to, to a course and everybody's kind of eager to learn the principle and practice the technique and they want you to kind of make sure that you put in the tourniquet correctly, that you're applying pressure or you're packing correctly, it's very gratifying to be able to uh, to to train so many people who actually need it and, and uh, really are very grateful for uh, the knowledge transfer. At the same time, we train uh, local doctors who continue to train after we leave, and so the, the effort continues and expands even after the mission has been completed. So one uh, question I get asked quite frequently is, What's the standard of care? Like, are we operating in some kind of dirt hut and, like, not using sterility, or or, or are we doing it at the same kind of level that we do in, in the States? Well, that's a good question. So, um, you know, you have to go in with a um, flexible mindset, and you have to be actually very flexible um, because we're really trying to do the best we can to maintain U.S. standards. It's not always possible. We can't always do it 100% um, for various reasons we can get into. But uh, the reality is we're, we're there trying to um, maintain the standard of care as much as possible. Now, we have to be flexible. Sometimes things uh, don't go necessarily the way we want. Sometimes we have to adjust based on the challenges we face. So people who go on a mission have, have to be flexible. It's not one way or the highway. It's, you know, adjusting to what um, what the local situation is and doing the best to get the best outcomes we do follow our outcomes. We look. We have a QA, QI system to follow up on our um, complications or issues. But again, you know, um, safety is our number one concern. Patient satisfaction is number one concern. The only way to do it is just to maintain the highest quality of care we can in the setting. And that was my impression last year and this year as well, is that we still do a timeout. Everything is sterile. We may have two surgeries going on in the same room, but there's clearly a division in this is that patient space, this is this patient space. There's no sharing of instruments. That we try to maintain our standards. And the other thing I really like to talk about flexibility. Remember on this trip, you know, a clip applier was an issue. We were doing lap coles every day, and we didn't know if we had a clip applier that was going to work because one had broken. So you and I and the other surgeons, we all watch YouTube videos on how do we do extracorporeal knot tying with a intracorporeal instrument and try to get it around that cystic duct. And then we ended up needing to do that the following day, and it worked well and safely. We didn't compromise patient care or compromise the surgery itself just because we lost a clip of wire. Absolutely, and that's kind of the challenge of these missions, you know, and, you know, it's it's kind of intellectually sometimes um, challenging to to kind of figure out a solution. And, again, safety is the number one concern. So we've, we, we always find a solution. You know, when you have multiple people kind of thinking through or troubleshooting a problem, we end up finding a solution. If not, we readjust our goals, we readjust the surgeries we do, and um, and we, we never kind of put the patients at risk in any way. You and I have, have canceled cases saying this isn't going to be safe, let's not do it. Even though we want to help the patient, if it's not safe, we don't do the case. Absolutely, and and the reason safety is so important is, number one, you don't want to leave anything behind for the local team to deal with. It affects the team morale. Uh, we're there to kind of um, do quick, kind of um, effective surgery and not really take on challenging cases that we know are going to be um, challenging post-op with their complication. And the, the, usually the, the facilities we go to are have limited resources, so we don't want to challenge them as well and challenge their resources more than, than they're already been challenged. So I think... Uh, you know, judgment uh, comes from these experiences. We stress to the OR nurses, to everybody on the team, that safety is number one. So if they see anything that's not safe, um, there's a decision-making that that has to occur. Safety is always the number one factor in these situations. Safety not just in the OR, 
because a lot of surgeries we can do, but also safety in the post-op period, which sometimes we forget. So one thing we haven't talked about yet is kind of the fun part of the mission and as far as the cultural experience. So going to a new country, experiencing the culture, I, I really have been impressed about how much you and your team have tried to make sure we get a cultural experience as well as a humanitarian experience. Absolutely. So I think, you know, that's not the primary goal of the mission, obviously, but we work so hard, we're so exhausted. At the end of the day, uh, it's always nice to have something that's going to recharge your battery and kind of defocus you from the clinical challenges and the, and the physical demands of the day. So we always try to do a night activity where we try to introduce some culture, whether we have an outside speaker talking about the, you know, the healthcare system or the challenges of having surgery in the particular location. Uh, we've had, um, you know, kind of walking tours of the city so we can understand the cultural, uh, the history and the um, the richness of the traditions. And the and it's always very enriching and it's very gratifying to learn about other culture and and also, like the the resilience of the of the patients we meet in Sierra Leone, there there are people who walk for hours and sit there very uh, with a lot of pride, like waiting for their surgery. And and you can see the 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 toughness that they have to be uh, to kind of survive in the environment they live in. And they're so resilient and appreciative. It's it's so gratifying and so inspiring. And uh, there's no way to to really describe it until you see it and you experience it. So I think. In addition to the surgery and helping others, there, there is that enriching personal experience where you get to see the, the human diversity, the human resilience, and a certain optimism you feel on the team and that's passionate about, about the common goal and, and passionate about helping others. And it's, it's a lot of positive energy and it's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of personal enrichment um, with, with the things we witness. All, volunteers are also very passionate. So, Sometimes we're inspired by each other, by volunteer stories, what they've done in the past, what they want to do, and one of the goals of the mission is to inspire people to kind of go after their goals and do even more than what they think they can. The surgeons you've seen who go on missions, they come home. You've, you've had a lot of residents you've worked with that go on missions and come home. Um, you and I obviously have been in communication. What is the, what's your perspective on how, how are surgeons after a mission? Like, do you notice a, a change in their kind of perspective on life or their their attitude in the operating room? Well, what I hear a lot of is basically um, it's, it's sometimes a bit challenging to go back, and so sometimes it's a reverse culture shock. And what that means is you come back and you're shocked by, you know, how we do things, how much we have, how how accessible things are. And sometimes there's a little bit of an awakening, and it kind of a resets your perspective you know, on your life or your work and the things you usually complain about or that frustrate you, sometimes there is a change in perspective and you look at things in a different way. Uh, so a lot of people sometimes uh, come back and they change their attitude, they're rejuvenated, they, they kind of can deal with issues and problems that have been going on in their like, personal lives or professional lives and they have this extra energy and positivity that helps them kind of uh, deal, deal with situations. Uh, sometimes residents kind of feel... Uh, that experience is kind of uh, enriching. They they get to do a lot of cases with the same attending on an on a regular basis. Their self confidence, their surgical skills improve, and so they appreciate that experience. But I think a lot of time people come back with a with a new sense of you know optimism, energy, and that helps you kind of uh, you know get going again uh, with life and and, and you know uh, really appreciating what you have and you know help helps give you some perspective of the challenges uh, that everybody faces and uh, you know healing of your wounds i found uh when i got back i was much kinder to my or manager who has to run the board and when i'm trying to get an add on case i have a new perspective after running the or in peru what it what it's like trying to make sure everyone gets lunch and all the surgeons are appropriately assigned to cases um, and the other thing I found is just an appreciation for turnover time. I mean, in Peru, there's three or four of us in a room. We all turn the room over and do the counts and move the patient. And, and there's, just, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen between cases that I don't think in America we quite, as surgeons at least, get that perspective because in between cases we are doing notes and talking to patients and the families and rounding. We're doing other things, not understanding what happens in between cases. It's a lot of work. Absolutely. And it's, you get this situational awareness where you now realize – a lot of the stuff that's happening in the background that you're 
not really paying attention to in the U.S. because you have other responsibility, especially, you know, a lot of the, you know, bureaucratic task work that we have to do. Um, and so you, you get more aware on these missions. It's also, you know, this is my, this was my 20th mission, so it's very humbling. I still learn every day on every mission new things, whether it's, you know, you know the OR or surgical techniques or um, medical stuff. It's it's really very humbling, and and you keep learning with with every experience with every team, and that's part of the reason I love mission, and that's why it's so enriching, gratifying, and and no, it's it's kind of a bit of a cliche. People say it all the time, but you know, as much as we give and as much of an effort and a struggle it is to complete the mission, we get so much more out of it than we actually give, and so. Um, you know, I'm very grateful for for that journey, for that experience, and for all the missions I've been involved in, and for all the volunteers that have kind of trusted uh, Ishi and, and and myself to 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 go to these far places and do the things we we love to do. So, if somebody is uh, listening to this and they, they are interested and they want to go do surgical missions, how how do you get involved? That seems to be the hardest part. Is the enthusiasm there, but then? How do you how do you find a place like EC or one of the other uh, groups that go out? Well, I mean, people do it for different reasons. Sometimes people are running away from problems. Some people, sometimes people want to, you know, kind of recover. Sometimes people are burned out, and uh, you know, it's people need to think first of all why they're doing it. Is it a passion? Is it a challenge? Um, you know, once kind of they've been honest with themselves and done some uh, soul searching, it's just a matter of. Um, finding an organization that does this on a regular basis and uh, finding an organization that matches kind of your personality and what you want to accomplish. There, There is a growing number of organizations that are doing it. Ishii is just one of them. Um, but I think, you know, looking at their website and, and seeing the kind of surgeries they do and the locations they go and uh, basically interviewing and talking to surgeons that have been on the mission to see what the experience is like, what are the challenges, uh, what are the what are the rewards uh, that come out of the mission, and then basically uh, committing to to one. Uh, when you commit to one, you got to make sure that it doesn't affect negatively your your team. You have to kind of schedule at a time that's kind of a slower time for you know the the division. There's like no meeting. There's no you know deadlines for abstract, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know t- timing is important. Getting the the okay from the family or significant others is also important and kind of understanding that there are risks in doing this. We you're traveling for a long distance, you know, sometimes there's malaria in the location, you're traveling on roads in in in, in poor countries that are not always as, you know, safe. And so, you know, realizing that you need to have a good reason to do this and this is not a vacation. Um I think once you have the right frame mind and understand why you're doing it, everything falls into the place and this is something that you have a passion for, you get hooked, and you really want to do it on a regular basis. Well, yeah, thank you so much for taking some time with me. What's going to come up in uh, the rest of the podcast is I'm going to interview the nurses, the CRNAs, the anesthesiologists, the other surgeons, the residents who came with us, and kind of get everybody's perspective. Now we're going to close the podcast with a nice interview uh, with uh, Pete Johnson, who was your um, Global Surgery Fellow. Could you maybe give us a little preview? Like, what what is Pete's job? Like, he just seems to be very involved in every aspect of our mission. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, part of my academic work is running a Center for Global Surgery and running a Global Surgery Fellowship. So, we're very lucky here at uh, NDMS Rutgers to have a uh, Global Surgery Fellowship, which is sponsored by uh, uh, the chair, supported and sponsored by the chair of surgery, Dr. Mosenthal. And with this fellowship, we have residents who are third or fourth year get a unique opportunity to do what we call the Mixed Global Surgery Fellowship. And by mixed, I mean it's a combination of clinical experience where they go on a mission or they stay behind uh, and and work with the local doctor so that they have the experience of um, international uh, humanitarian work. There's also a focus on teaching and education, uh, both locally at NGMS teaching uh, global surgery courses or lectures or being involved in conferences as well as abroad, you know, teaching the family doctor or most of the time the ones running the these hospitals, teaching them surgical skills, trauma skills, um, again, it's the knowledge uh, exchange. And finally, the last component is uh, the research component, so trying to do research um, either about the mission or about 
the whole global surgery effort and kind of advancing the knowledge um, that is uh, that is still lagging behind behind the effort. And they're obviously advocates for global surgery, so they're kind of role models for other residents and medical students who who are also interested and passionate. So they're really good spokesmen for for this effort. Well, I look forward to it. Uh, at the end of the TraumaCast, we'll interview Pete. Thank you again very much for taking some time with me, Diad. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Gary. Pleasure. I'm sitting here with Jesus Rosado. Jesus, if you want to tell us uh, who you are and where you're from. Hi, I'm Jesus Rosado. I'm uh, from New Jersey. I go, am a surgical resident, BGY4, currently doing research at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. So I think it's a unique perspective that you bring to our group because you're a surgeon and you're also uh, fluent in Spanish. Um, can you maybe highlight for us some of the cultural differences that you see in patients in the States versus patients here uh, as they go through their operative experience? So differently than the patients that we usually experience in the United States, most patients in the U.S. have uh, some form of insurance when they come from an operation. They're usually a little bit more well-versed in the idea of surgery as a generalization and it's a little bit easier to get across certain techniques such as laparoscopic surgery. And one of the problems that we encountered here was, in me personally, as a surgeon I consented to patients um, and since I speak Spanish and a lot of the patients did not understand what a laparoscopic surgery truly entailed when it came especially to the gallbladder. Um, so there were uh, some limitations in what each of these surgeries actually entail. Uh, another difference that we've encountered here that uh, is very different from the U.S. is that in the U.S. when someone comes for a surgery they just come for surgery. They don't really worry about anything else that goes into ha making that surgery happen such as the equipment needed and the medications and the uh, let's say if you needed a hernia the mesh that you may need and things like that versus the patients here are kind of very much involved with that because in order to have surgery here they have to buy all those things themselves. So we had lots of patients who were asking us what kind of mesh they had to go buy, what medications they needed to go buy because they don't receive those things directly from the hospital. They have to provide them themselves. And just to be clear, uh, what Jesus is referring to is if they were to come have surgery um, by one of the local surgeons, not the Ishii team, this is how the medical system works. You go out and buy your own supplies, bring them with you for the procedure. Uh, when we come down here, we supply all of our medications and our meshes and the anesthetics. However, the patients do still have to purchase um, labs or imaging, um, ultrasounds, chest x-rays, things like that. So they have a financial investment uh, prior to even uh, going to the operating room. The difference I've noticed in pain control, it seems like we are getting through most of these surgeries with either regional anesthesia and in post-op they need like Tylenol. We send them home really with Tylenol and Motrin. We aren't sending them home with any narcotics. Do you feel that they are satisfied? Their pain is, is well controlled? Uh, I do think it is actually very well controlled and I think that we overuse medications in, a, in general in the U.S. compared to what we see here. I mean that's a generalization for everything we do here we can tell that we can get through a lot more here whether even just be operating versus taking care of the patients compared to in the US and I think that has a, a cultural difference in terms of what in the US we know about right people know or have a lower tolerance for pain and they just in general expect that they're going to get something stronger right. when it doesn't work where patients here they seem to be able to better cope with that level to the pain to some degree that what we would consider what they what each patient views uh, as pain is now it's very subjective so it's up to their own perception of what they really viewing the pain as and the patients here in Peru are much more adept at getting through with less most likely because they probably can't afford more and they also have different expectations and just as a plug for TraumaCast we have recently had two TraumaCasts in the past month uh, published on opioid uh, management uh, uh, on discharge as well as managing acute pain in the hospital. So if you haven't listened to those trauma casts, go back and, and take a listen. Um, and Jesus, one other thing I want to touch base with you. It seems like there are a lot of family members here. Each each patient that comes into the hospital, there's many, many people surrounding them. They bring in their own food. They have their own blankets. They have their own pajamas. That is very different than the States. Again, that speaks to the way uh, medicine is practiced here. So they have to provide everything. So you, in order to come to the hospital, they would have to bring their own sheets. Their family would have to bring their own food. So that it, there is a need for their family to be very involved in their care, or essentially, if not, 
they would not have anything available to them. Culturally as well, most Hispanic countries, in, such as Peru, there are usually very large, tight-knit families that kind of are always together. So when one is, you know, there's, or you have a very tight community that you're usually very involved with. Very sometimes different that you, you see a variable of that in the U.S., but in terms of the actual providing of your own food, your own clothes and everything, that is in part due to just the standard of uh, care here that compared to what at the U.S. I think it's fantastic. When you walk on the post-op wards, it's not just white sheets and, and drapes. It's these brightly colored blankets and everyone's got different colored clothes on. It just It's a much more homey kind of feel. The other thing I found is really nice is that the family members walk our patients. So there's families walking up and down the hallways. We're not waiting for a physical therapist to come three times a week to get out of bed once. It's been, it's been great for post-operative care. And the families that I've interacted with, if we give them instructions on what needs to be done, they're very good about helping the patient get through those instructions, whether it's walking, incentive spirometry, having something to eat or drink, pain management, and so on. Listen, Jesus, it's been great having you uh, with us. You are certainly a very, very valued member of the team, being a surgeon as well as being bilingual. And thank you for taking some time. Thank you. Anytime. I'm sitting here with Jordan, one of our residents. Jordan, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, hey, my name is Jordan Dozier. I'm a surgical resident at Rutgers, uh, New Jersey, in uh, Newark. And how has your experience been so far? What do you do on a mission? Uh, so my role is uh, very similar to what it would be um, back in the States in terms of uh, triaging patients. Uh, we started off uh, at the beginning of the mission, triaged I think over 70 patients. Um, and so we triaged them, made sure that they were good operative candidates. Yeah, we see some pathology here we don't generally see back in the States, certainly uh, open cholecystectomies, um, femoral hernias, and then the large uh, scrotal hernias that generally just don't get that bad back home. Yeah. So it's nice that you get a, a better breadth of experience from your surgical side during your residency. Uh, and you really are the workhorses um, of the surgical team here. Can you uh, help explain if it was a you know another resident who might be listening to the podcast, kind of like what your typical day is like? Yeah, sure. So we come in around eight o'clock. Um, we'll round on the wards, and uh, so we'll round on all of the previous surgeries. So about twelve to fifteen patients. Uh, as soon as we're finished round, we'll be operating uh, pretty much from nine a.m. until five p.m. Uh, nonstop. After we round, after we operate, we'll uh, round on. Uh, the any patients that may have had some issues or maybe couldn't be discharged on post-op day one. Then we head back to the hotel, and yeah, yeah. one of my favorite things about the mission is that we certainly eat a lot, and we eat great food, yeah. and get some cultural experiences. Um, is this your first time coming down to Peru? Yeah, this is my first time coming to Peru, uh, and so far it's been, you know, been awesome. The food is amazing, um, and we had a chance to go up into the mountains and see some of the some of the nature uh, here in Trujillo which is also um, was stunning it was really beautiful and did you come here are you a native uh, or excuse me a fluent Spanish speaker I'm not I don't speak a lick of Spanish I mean I can get through a basic conversation you can order a beer and find the bathroom I can <laughs> order a beer find the bathroom and uh, say tiene de lore but uh that's about the full extent of it, but uh, luckily there's a lot of uh, great staff members here, different nurses, PAs, uh, and other members of the team uh, who do speak a fair amount of Spanish, uh, so we are make sure that we're not you know, compromising care, so I'll always have somebody who's fluent uh, in Spanish whenever I'm talking to a patient. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. I'm here with our operating room nurses. If you ladies wouldn't mind, take a moment to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Jesenia Salgado. I'm from New York. I work at Memorial Sloan Kettering as one of the nurse leaders for the OR. Hi, I'm Babe Carlson. I'm originally from Denmark. I've been working 25 years in New York City at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Hi, my name is Gail Simmons. I'm working in New York at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Are you an OR nurse as well there? Yes. Lovely. Well, one of the things I have to say that I find most impressive on these mission trips is you're in a new building with new surgeons, with new staff, and sometimes new equipment, and it's a lot of just problem solving, and I just want to first of all say, just say I think you, three of you did an amazing job of just fixing whatever needed to get fixed. Um, can you tell me a little bit of what was going on kind of in the background, because I would walk in in the morning and things were just ready, but I felt like there must have been a lot of coordination between the three of you to figure out who's doing what and where. 
Yes, we pretty much planned the night before what rooms was going to be taken by which nurse, and we set it set up the supplies and equipment um, for the next case the night before. And were there any instrument issues this week? So we did have one room that was dedicated mostly for or only for laparoscopic cases, and unfortunately, the only clip applier that we had happened to first malfunction and then break. So there are many times where things are left out of our control. It's not so much a matter of like, oh no, we can't do this. It's, oh no, how are we going to do this next time and figure it out. So that's exactly what happened. And I just want to point out, <laughs> most turnovers in most hospitals never hit 30 minutes. And I would say our Cydex time to soak the instruments took 30 minutes. And often we were waiting for the Cydex and the patient, the anesthesiologist or nurses, the surgeons were ready to go, which is a very different experience we have in the States. Um, I also felt in the OR that everybody in the room was on the same team. It wasn't that the surgeon sat and had coffee and waited to be presented with the patient prepped and drugged and ready. The resident didn't just come in and then leave and do paperwork. Anesthesia didn't only do anesthesia. I just felt like, from my perspective, we were all trying to do whatever needed to get done in the room. And a lot of that burden falls on the OR nurses. How, how did you all feel the teamwork was going amongst all the different uh, specialties that were in the room? Um, I felt really good about the teamwork um, around the members of the group. I had surgeons asking all the time, how can I help? Willing to clean, bring the patients, strap the patients. It was really a uh, good and different experience from what, you know, we're accustomed to in the U.S. <laughs> so it was good. The teamwork, I think, really made a difference. How about you, Bibbs? How was your room? Uh, I can just say the same thing, and I think it basically come down, comes down to what kind of people choose to go on missions, because these are people who have, uh, you know, beyond average sense of dedication, and they come here to get the work done done for for people who don't have access to healthcare the way we do. So that means that you are, you are willing to to give up on the usual hierarchy and and stick to the job descriptions and basically give up on rigidity. There's a lot of it takes a lot of flexibility to go on missions because mm -hmm. you you wind up make a lot of compromises, you, you wind up having to improvise, you wind up having to do stuff you may not necessarily do at home. And um, it takes a certain personality to be willing to do that. Yeah, and for our listeners, one thing I find very interesting is we all call each other by our first names. No one's called doctor. We don't say, hey, anesthesia, can you lower the bed? Or, hey, where's the nurse? Like, we know each other. It's all on a first-name basis, which I think helps to, like you said, break up the rigidity and, and decrease kind of the hierarchy. We, try to, we call it flatten the hierarchy is what we like to do. Um, and then, yes, I want to talk to you about, about you were the primary Spanish-speaking OR nurse, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How was yeah. that, that you have a job to do, a busy room, high turnover, and yet... All three rooms are constantly calling you to the bedside to like help us with our Spanish translation. Uh, it was a great experience getting pulled. I don't mind. Um, as you know, Bib said, we're all here for a certain reason and a purpose. Otherwise, you know, you wouldn't have signed up for a mission. So I came here with this self you know, self-sacrificing attitude. Uh, but it was also an opportunity that allowed me to get to know the local nurses and the local staff better, and that's something I'll never be able to gain. Mm -hmm in the States. So it was priceless. Worth yeah. it. The local staff was awesome. We would, at the moment we left the room, they would have that room cleaned and mopped and ready to go in, in minutes. I think that I want to like take all of them with us back to the <laughs> States and like go yeah. like as a consulting position to figure out how to turn our rooms over uh, even faster and be more efficient. Well, again, I can't say thank you enough to all three of you. I worked with all of you all week long and it, you're just fantastic women. Problem solvers like I have never met before in the OR and I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I'm sitting here with Charlotte. Charlotte, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, my name's Charlotte Holmes, and I'm from Sheffield in England. And I think this might be the first time we've had somebody from the UK come on an Ishii mission. How did you even hear about us? In 2014, I came to Trujillo as part of the Medical Elective Network program. I did a six-week attachment in the Regional Hospital here in gynecology and general surgery. Um, it involves having uh, Spanish classes in the afternoon, and in the morning you go to one of the hospitals in Trujillo, mine was uh, the Regional um, Big Hospital, um, which consisted of working in the OR, um, assisting in operations, and uh, working in the, on the floor with the in interns and attending rounds. 
and I also did two weeks in the surgical emergency room um, uh, with looking at surgical emerge emergency patients uh, with the team there. Did you find that the patients and their families, if, if you made errors in your Spanish or, or were not maybe speaking the grammar correctly, did they have any issue with that or, or did they seem generally just pleased that you were able to speak to them in their language? I haven't had any problems with, with that at all. Um, they, I think, I think they seem very understanding. Um, I always explain to them that you know, my Spanish um, isn't very good, um, but they they're very understanding of that. They're very polite, very courteous, um, and they will correct me and help me if they think I know what I'm going to say. Um, and I've had no problems. They've all been very forgiving. <laughs> so tell us, uh, what was your role on the mission? So you you explained your surgical training back home. And, uh, and your Spanish uh, abilities to speak. Uh, what was your day-to-day uh, -day life like when you were here? Um, I've had many different roles since I've, I've, since I've been here. I've been part of the team that has been teaching the Stop the Bleed course that ISHI provides to um, the local population. On the last day today, I um, was involved in a um, mission to a men's prison uh, to provide free consultations and prescriptions where needed to the prisoners at the prison. I saw 20 people today. Oh, that's fantastic. There's, there's so much that happens on this mission. There's so many different layers to it. I didn't even know that, that we were doing consultations with the prison. Um, it's a, tell me more about the Stop the Bleed campaign. You've all been out on, I think, four or five different uh, events so far? Um, I myself have taken part in two courses um, demonstrating um, packing wounds um, and helping assess the um, delegates of, of the course. Is Stop the Bleed a campaign that you had heard about before you came on this mission? No, it's not something I'd heard of before. Um, it's something that I learned about when I joined um, the ISHI team um, before the mission, um, that I heard about it first off at the, the team briefing that we had. And from what I've seen, the delegates are really appreciative of it. They've been engaged, they've asked lots of questions, they find, they, they've told me that they're going to find this useful. They've all seen situations where they would have loved to have had this training. They've seen people with serious bleeds and they wish they could have done more. Well, lovely. Thank you so much for joining us. It is my absolute great pleasure to uh, speak to our next guest, my good, good friend Joe Griffith. Joe and I worked together at GW when I was an ICU fellow, and he was an ICU nurse. I since graduated, and Joe went on to uh, CRNA school, and then we reconnected by coming back uh, to Peru together and working for the week. So I wanted to get Joe's perspective on uh, what it's like to work in Peru on a mission trip uh, from anesthesia. Joe, you can say hello and let everyone know what you do now. Hello, I'm Joe. I practice anesthesia as a CRNA in northern Minnesota currently and in northern Wisconsin as well. So we're on day four or day five now. Um, can you tell everyone what your experience has been like? The experience for me so far has been absolutely amazing. I, uh, it's my first mission trip. I found it to be incredibly emotional. It's incredibly moving. Uh, the day I was leaving for the airport, I just felt uh, excited, happy, uh, emotional about uh, this experience, upcoming experience, and now that I'm here and we're, we're doing this great work and everyone on the team just kind of uh, pitches in and it's just uh, everyone really works really fluidly to accomplish a goal and at the end of the day the goal is like let's get as many cases done as we can and help these people as safely as possible. So there's a bit of difference in how we treat patients in the OR here compared to the States. In the States it's very easy to just either intubate or LMA um, and I wondered if you could kind of expound a bit on how we manage pain control um, with the regional blocks and things that we do on a mission trip. They're just a bit different than we do back home. Well at a hospital like this we don't really have the ability uh, to manage patients postoperatively after general anesthesia uh, as well as um, we do in the states. So any case that we can do under regional that we might do under general back home because the recovery would be a little bit quicker, we'll, we'll opt for regional whether it be a spinal block or uh, we'll do certain uh, blocks, uh, tap blocks, rectal sheath blocks, QL blocks for open coles, and it will reduce the narcotic consumption for the patients. We use NOMS, uh, steroid anti-inflammatory drugs to manage pain postoperatively. We don't. We try to avoid any opioids postoperatively, and the blocks have been really successful for all of these patients. We're getting through some of these open coles with just a hundred mics of fentanyl. And just to be clear, um, to make sure that the audience understands, we can take care of patients post-op with the same level of care 
even if they've had general anesthesia, it's more of a, um, a workflow. We can't take care of as many. So we really only want to have like one patient at a time who's coming off of general anesthesia. The rest of the patients in our um, PACU are much easier to manage if it's a local um, or a, a nerve block uh, rather than having everyone coming out under general anesthesia. And as opposed to the states, a lot of times when we do uh, spinals for patients, we will sedate them with propofol. And here, we place the spinal, and the, the patient is awake, and we're, we're talking with the patient, and we use um, more encouragement and positive reinforcement type anesthesia than uh, a propofol-based anesthetic. And my impression, at least from my side of the ether drape, is that the patients seem satisfied. I don't think that we're putting anyone through pain or making them go through the, anything that is uncomfortable, they seem quite content and, and they seem very grateful. How's it been on uh, your side of the ether drape? I, I completely agree. I mean, patients, uh, for the most part, I'd say 95% of the patients, uh, we explain to them what's going to happen and they're very content. Most of them are uh, very grateful and very happy to be there. So a lot of times after we place this final, we lay them down and we explain to them the pre procedure starting. Some of them we will get a little emotional because they're, you know this is a service that we're providing to them um, for... Uh, you, it's not free, but you know the, the volunteers put in a lot of work, and they're very grateful for that. So, based on your experience so far, would you recommend to other anesthesia providers that they come on a mission trip? Absolutely. I mean, for me, the experience has been uh, one where I've stepped outside my comfort zone a little bit with anesthesia because we're practicing things just a little bit differently and. Um, it's been a, a learning experience for me working in a country where I don't, I'm not a native speaker of the language, but it hasn't been a, that was my biggest worry when I came down is I, I cannot, I'm not good at speaking Spanish and my vocabulary is maybe 10 words and I, my vocabulary has doubled since I've been here for Spanish. <laughs> to 20 words? <laughs> to 20 words. <laughs> and, uh, and I, and I, but I, it hasn't been a hindrance at all throughout the entire, the entire trip and for me it's been a, a growing experience in my practice of anesthesia as well as personally. Well, and I'll put a plug in for that. If, if any of our listeners have a friend and want to go uh, like couples match out to a mission trip, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's been such a great experience to be able to share something like this with one of my good friends. Joe, thank you so much for chatting with me. And thank you, Carrie, and thank you for inviting me on the trip. I'm with Carissa Chen. She's one of our PGY1 residents. Carissa, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us where you're from? Sure. Hi, my name is Carissa. I'm from upstate New York and did my medical school at the University of Buffalo. And I'm starting my general surgery residency in Loyola at Maywood, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Is this your first mission trip? Yep. How did you hear about it? A couple of things. So when I interviewed at Rutgers for residency, I met Pete um, and I was really interested in all of his work through the Global Health Fellowship that he's doing. And I knew I had some time off between med school graduation and the start of residency, so I was looking for programs that gave me this type of opportunity. How has your experience been this week? I knew that as an incoming PGY1, I wasn't quite a resident, but I wasn't quite a medical student either. But this week I got, I feel like I got to do it all. Like I just got a better appreciation and also understanding of what is going on before and after these cases. Oh, that's great. Now, it's good that you get a, a good experience here. Do you think you'll be coming on trips again? I would absolutely love to. That's great. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, thank you. I'm here with both of our PACU nurses, Jackie and Ashley. Jackie, why don't you tell us where you're from? Um, my name is Jackie. I am from New York City. I work at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Cornell, in the PACU. Hi, my name is Ashley. I work at UC Irvine Medical Center. I work in surgical trauma ICU. Great. So that was one of the first things I was ask you is that you are both trained as nurses. Jackie, you work as a PACU nurse, but Ashley, you're not usually doing PACU. How was this experience for you coming and doing a different role? Well, we usually, we sometimes get patients from OR, so I kind of knew what to do and stuff, but then Jackie knows how to do um, PACU stuff more than I do, so she helped me a lot. Now, I was uh, in the OR finishing up our last day and didn't get to go to the ceremony the, where they appreciated us. If you wouldn't mind um, telling us what that was like. Yes. Uh, it was it was very nice. It, it was up in the auditorium. They wanted to express to all of us um, from every single patient how well cared of they all felt. And one thing I remember from my previous trips is I don't think they quite ever understand how much we appreciate the yes. experience as well. Yes. Um, and so we always give them thank you gifts mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. kind of express back in the same regard what an important experience in our lives this is and how much it means to us as well. Right, right. Now one of the best parts about the mission beyond you know the surgery and the caring for the patients is actually getting the cultural experience. How has your experience been this week uh, as far as experiencing some of the culture of uh, Trujillo and Peru? 
Well, everybody here is very welcoming. They're all smiling. And then the food is great. You know, <laughs> I'll miss the food the most, I'm <laughs> to tell you the truth. Um, but yeah, people are so nice here. So, yeah. And the entire group went out for karaoke last night. And for my listeners out there, I want to let you know you're standing and listening to royalty. Jackie sang some amazing, amazing music. So that, that's one of the fun things is yeah. learning about all of our different talents or lack of talent that it comes to, in my case, with karaoke um, and uh, getting to know each other as a team. Do you yeah. feel that you, you know, with all the things we've done in the evening and all the work we do during the day, that you've made some really close friends this trip? Absolutely. This was an incredible bonding experience. We're all basically being asked to use our expertise in our fields to come together to work with complete strangers to make something happen. And that, as an experience, really forces you into relationships. And it like worked out so seamlessly, I, I, I thought, um, to really create these strong bonds, especially then we then get to unwind together and then work hard together online and it's just it's a great formula for making long-lasting relationships I think. Mm-hmm. How about you Ashley? Yes I completely agree with Jackie yeah it's you know it's hard to work with strangers but mm-hmm. then because we went out every night you know we you know we got to know each other better you know so at the end now we're all friends now you know mm-hmm. so we're gonna you know exchange our numbers and you know keep in contact. And I'll say just to kind of frame out what we're doing right now, we're actually sitting in the PACU. Our <laughs> second to last patient is here. Uh, we've just been given the verbal heads up. Our very last patient of the week is about to head in. So I just want to say thank you to the two PACU nurses so much for all your help this week. You made our jobs very easy from coming out of the OR. Um, and uh, thank you for taking time to talk to me. Of course. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Karen. I'm sitting here with Bruno. Bruno, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Bruno. The last name is Pedro Mukuro, and I am from New Jersey. I'm a registered nurse anesthetist and I practice with the University of Rutgers in New Jersey. Bruno, can you give the audience an impression of what we are doing right now? Right now we're on a mission trip to a town called Trujillo in... No, 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 Bruno, Bruno. You and I are having the best part of the entire trip. What are you and I doing right now? Well, right now, we are just sitting enjoying the beautiful sunset on the coasts by the beach. It's been five long days of uh, more than 60 cases, and one of the best parts about coming to Trujillo is enjoying the culture and the city and seeing all the different sites. What has been your favorite part of the trip so far? Favorite part of the trip so far is seeing how much we've accomplished at the end of the week and having the time to sit back and just relax on wine and just talk about all the people that we've helped and how much good stories we've gotten out of them. One of the things I uh, wanted to talk to you about, last year was my first trip and I met you and then you and I met up again this year and we have got this just fantastic friendship from doing these trips together. This isn't your first trip obviously. How many trips have you done and, and do you feel like there's this kind of network of international surgeons that you've gotten to know? I think this is a probably my seventh trip, if I'm not mistaken. Pardon me, I've had a few piscos, uh, but otherwise, uh, just getting to meet different people, uh, you know, different group, different dynamics. Everybody bring a special flavor to the group, and uh, just enjoying what everyone have to contribute is just been a phenomenal experience. That's one thing I've noticed in uh, our ORs is that the anesthesiologist, I mean, you are really, you're working the whole time because even if it's general, it's general anesthesia, which is the normal workload, but if it's spinal, it's a lot of talk therapy and reassurance and just holding their hand and like, they see you under that ether drape the whole time we're operating and it's just, it's a lot of work, but it also seems very gratifying because at the end of the day, they often don't remember who I am, but they always know who you guys are. Oh, wow. That is uh, that is reassuring to know because sometimes we we feel like you know because the other team they always go back and round and we don't often get a chance to because of the quick turnover and getting things moving, uh, getting the flow going. We don't often get a chance to see the patients after we drop them off. So it's really really encouraging to hear that you know the patients speak kindly of us and we really appreciate that and uh, it's warming to know that. Oh yes, on rounds we hear, Donde Bruno, Donde Nabil, Donde Joe, <laughs> <laughs> to let them know you're in the OR while we do rounds. 
But again, thank you so much for, for your volunteer work and for sitting with me and, and uh, giving us your perspective. It's been a pleasure. It's nothing I'd rather do with my extra time. <laughs> so I'm doing an interview right now with uh, Pete Johnstone, and I'm lucky to be able to catch him on the phone after the mission. Pete, if you would like to say hello and introduce yourself, let us know where you're from. Uh, hello, my name is Pete Johnston. Uh, I call home the uh, New York metropolitan area right now. I'm in Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, I am a, a general surgery resident at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. And for the past two years, I've been taking a break in between my PGY three and four year to do a global surgery fellowship uh, under the Department of Surgery at NJMS. And can you expound a bit and tell us what does that fellowship entail? So this fellowship is a new endeavor uh, run by uh, Dr. Ziad Sifri in the Department of Trauma. Uh, and I'm the second person to do this job, which basically consists of three different aspects. There is a uh, clinical aspect, which involves participating in short-term humanitarian surgical missions with the uh, organization, the International Surgical Health Initiative, or ISHI. Uh, my role in this is to act as a resident um, clinically, as well as I have a role in leadership and logistically before the missions I help uh, supply, find the supplies and package everything for the mission. And on the mission I help run the operating room as well as all of the smaller things that happen around the mission, uh, such as educational endeavors and capacity building projects. Uh, aside from my clinical duties, I have research duties uh, in which I have various projects focusing on different aspects of the global surgery problem in the different regions that ISHI visits. Uh, we've used basically ISHI's connections to uh, spark longer-term projects in the communities we visit and bring in the academic uh, prowess of the Rutgers behind it to kind of support some of these endeavors. And my job is to kind of get these long-term capacity building projects started as well as do research revolving around uh, very burden of disease questions or the uh, interventions themselves that we're doing in the various levels. Uh, finally, there's an educational component of it where uh, I act as mentor for many of the medical students who are interested in global health at New Jersey Medical School and uh, provide mentorship with them in their, in their courses as well as the global health distinction students, which we have at uh, NJMS, which I also act as a mentor for them. And that's kind of the totality of the fellowship. That sounds like a very robust fellowship. How many uh, surgical missions did you go on during your fellowship? Uh, so over my two years, I uh, completed eight surgical, eight surgical missions, uh, seven of which were with ISHI, and one was with a partner organization called Saving Lives Initiatives to Sierra Leone. So you're a resident, very busy during your fellowship, and you've done a mission during your clinical year which is tough to do because most residents only get three weeks off of vacation, and, and residency is hard. You really do need that break. What was your experience like at, when you were a clinical resident of your, quote, vacation week being a week of 40, 50, 60 cases back-to-back and then coming home exhausted? How was that for you? Well, you gotta have you got to have the passion for it, I think, and if you do, then it becomes less of vacation and or less of a less of work and more of a vacation because you are rejuvenated by by these missions if you really love what you're doing. Um, so for me, the clinical work, though very busy uh, as we were, uh, was a, a bit of a different experience and, and not nearly as taxing as regular clinical work. And on top of that, I am a savvy traveler, so I happened to take a bus from Haiti to the Dominican Republic to spend a few days uh, in the ocean before coming back to my clinical rotations. That sounds definitely like the way to do it, to kind of put a little bit of a relaxation time on, on one end of the mission. So would you recommend to other residents that they have a passion for this, that they should approach their chair and try to take, you know, the six or seven clinical days off they need to go do these kind of trips, including weekends, obviously, so it ends up being, you know, nine or ten days total? Yeah, usually it'll, it'll eat up most of your two-week vacation. Um, I think that based on my experiences and the experiences that other residents that I've worked with who have done similar things, that I definitely think it's something that anyone with an interest should do. 
the work that you do there while you're busy, it's just a different kind of work and you feel a bit different for it. So it's not nearly as taxing. And again, I feel a lot of times at the end of missions, I feel more energized than I was before the mission, even after a hard week of surgery. So I want to um, go into your kind of role that you hadn't mentioned yet uh, with the surgical mission. So the surgeons, the attendings, the nurses, we all work for the week. And then we, we left Saturday and left you behind um, uh, with a small team to kind of do the post-up follow-up care. Can you tell us what that's like? What happens after we all leave? So it's, I've been doing this. This is one of the main things that I wanted to do as fellow as I saw that I could help improve the system clinically is to stay behind and perform our, our, our own follow-up so that we had a better idea of what were the issues that patients were coming back with. So I've been doing this for almost all of the uh eight missions that I've been on during this two years, and every mission's been a, been a bit different in terms of what comes back and what, what the responsibilities are. On this last mission, luckily, we had very few problems left behind. Uh, so on Saturday morning, which was the final team rounding, there was just one patient with concern for a hematoma, and we left him for an extra day, which just meant that on Sunday I had to go back and round and discharge him or set him up with appropriate local care if needed, and luckily that wasn't the case, and I was able to discharge him. Then following Sunday, now if he had been able to be discharged on Saturday, then Sunday would have been a complete day off, uh, and in preparation for Monday, which is when I held a follow-up clinic. So Monday and Tuesday, I saw we invited all of the our post-op patients back for their first uh, post-operative visit. So one, me and one other volunteer held clinic both uh, Monday and Tuesday morning for about uh, six hours each day, and we saw uh, 92% of the patients came back to, to see us for their first check. And that was a lot of uh, education more than anything. Uh, a lot of times patients will expect antibiotics, even though there's nothing wrong, or more medicine just for the sake of having medicine. Uh, we had to explain to a lot of patients that it was okay to eat fish, um, which is a staple of the Peruvian diet. However, there is a cultural belief that eating fish may inhibit wound healing. Um, so we we dealt with that that issue and told people to eat whatever they want, even though, you know, a week after their surgery, often people are still just eating soup because they believe that they're worried about, you know, eating regular diet despite us telling them at discharge. So the Post-operative visit, I think, is very important for some of this education to reinforce the education that maybe they didn't quite understand uh, at the time of discharge. Uh, luckily, again, they didn't see many issues that needed uh, outside referral, um, although I have in the past, is, um, as we do a lot of hernia surgeries, I've often referred people to a urologist for urinary retention and concomitant with BPH. Uh, however, this time we only had one gentleman came in with a um, early possible wound infection. He was to follow up with the local team uh, a few days later, and then we left a few a few patients here or there who needed their sutures or staples in for a few more days again to follow up with the local team. Uh, but really, me being there kind of took off a lot of work from the the team that would otherwise have to see our own patients. Now, on, on other missions, unfortunately, we haven't been as lucky, and we've had sicker patients that have been uh, kept behind and transferred to local uh, care, in which case I've had to round basically every day with the local team to ensure their care and also arrange for payment as this was a, an organization, an ECU's patient to take care of, which is obviously a lot more work and then on top of running a post-operative clinic. But, again, luckily his... Uh, his case turned out all right, and he's back to work. With uh, your experience, um, with all the pre-mission buildup and work that gets done, the clinical care that we give to the patients during the week that we're there, and then the care that you and the team give for the week after, and that transfer care over to the local uh, doctors if needed, do you think that the patients that we're taking care of on these missions are getting the same standard of care and quality of care that we expect to be able to provide for our patients here in the state? I think overall the, the simple answer is, is yes, but um, there are obviously places where you're going to have differences between the U.S. standard of care and the delivery of care in a low in a lower middle income country. Some of those 
factors are just systemic in that in the environment that you're visiting, uh, and therefore things are going to be slightly different in the way you do things. Uh, and I think some things are a bit of a recognition of many of the things that we do in high-income countries are maybe a little bit unnecessary uh, and overdone for regulatory and uh, for regulatory purposes. So I think that the care being delivered, we definitely focused on the important things that have evidence behind them, such as perioperative antibiotic use. We follow the strict guidelines for 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 these and other uh, clinical factors that have evidence-based guidelines. We try to best follow those. Uh, however, little things in terms of the actual delivery of care are going to be different just because of the constraints of the environment. Uh, I don't think, however, that these little things um, affect care negatively so long as the organization is well aware of how they may affect care and kind of considering that and planning for that. I think that it's possible that other organizations, uh, if they're not doing so well and not delivering care, may not just be cognizant of some of these issues. Well, thank you very much for all the hard work that you put in to these missions. I, I can't say enough. It could not be done without uh, you or somebody in your position doing all that work. So uh, thank you, and then uh, best of luck to you with the rest of your career. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.